0: For anybody who wants to start investigating the past, it would be interesting to find what I call a corridor to history, Mm. right? It's an area of the past that piques your curiosity and you take that particular area, be it a book, be it a museum object, be it a monument, you choose that as your entry point. This is the For Old Time Sake podcast by Athyasology, hosted by Eric Chopra and Kudrat Singh. In this podcast, we dive deep into the fascinating and multi-layered past of India, all while keeping histories of emotions and experiences at the core of our discussions. Here at Athyasology, we believe that nobody should feel left out of history. We're not just sharing stories about the big names, dates and places. We're also uncovering hidden gems from the footnotes of history. From overarching themes like society, polity and economy, to histories of art, gender, sexuality, fashion, horror and more, we have got you covered. Welcome to this captivating historical journey. Hello everybody, this is Eric Chopra. And this is Kudrat Singh. And welcome to another episode of the For Old Time Sake podcast by Theosology. A very happy new year to all of you.
1: So we thought that to start off the new year, it would be a good idea to take some of the questions that we've had over the past few weeks on our Instagram, on this podcast, and at various other places where you guys have actually asked us questions about
0: our work, about history. And though we know how resolutions usually tend to go, (laughs) we still think it's a good idea if any of you are wanting to make 2024 your year of falling in love with history, or if you're already history aficionado, for you to expand this love. I think it's a good idea to then take some questions that we had asked regarding the past, regarding our work at Ethiasology, so that it could give you all a bit of encouragement to take up the subject.
1: Okay, so the first question that we have is also one of our most frequently asked questions, which is, where does one start to read history? Or how to start if you are just getting started with the subject?
0: Right, so I think this is genuinely one of the most asked questions because i understand how perplexing it can be to figure out a starting point especially because you're dealing with a subject that deals with chronology it mm-hmm. deals with timelines it has a what we believe a certain beginning uh, but you know the last time that we picked up this question kudrat i think it was interesting that we asked a question to this question we said when you think about where does history begin Do you think about where does history end, Mm. right? You know, there is, I mean, there is no ending point to history. It's a continuous process. We're a part of it. We're in the making. So while, yes, there is a certain chronological way in which you can approach the past, wherein you start from the very beginning, be it in the Indian context, prehistory, or proto-history, you know, you could start off with the Harappan civilization and then go as time goes and takes you. But I also think for anybody who wants to start investigating the past, it would be interesting to find what I call a corridor to history, Hmm. right? It's an area of the past that piques your curiosity. And you take that particular area, be it a book, be it a museum object, be it a monument. You choose that as your entry point. For example, if I talk about uh, medieval paintings, right? Let's talk about paintings from the Mughal Atelier. I can start by looking at a painting that fascinates me. And the first thing that will speak to me is the technique, the visual story that's being conveyed. But that will also then take me to the craftsperson behind it, you know, the painter behind this work. That will take me to the patron behind this work. That will take me to the context of the patron. And that will slowly reveal to me the mores of the time, the society, polity and economy that sort of accepted this painting. And what this painting is also a result of is the said society, polity and economy. So, you know, looking at certain things that interest you, can become your entry point and then give you a sort of technique to approach the past with. So it's not definitely this chronological point of view, but a more interest-driven approach. What do you think?
1: Yes, Eric, I agree with you completely. And I think that while um, beginning this process, it's very important not to be daunted by timelines I mean, especially if you look at something like prehistory, for example, the time periods in prehistory literally span millennia. And it can be very intimidating for someone who's maybe more accustomed to reading, say, fiction, which is set in a particular space in a particular time and everything is very clearly figured out. That is not the case with something like prehistory. But when you find that one corridor, like you said, into something like that, it can really open the doors for you to explore more and to understand. Because essentially what we're looking at is patterns, right? Patterns of how people were, what they did, what the context was. And I think that once you pick and choose the way that you want to approach the subject, things will start to fall in line for you. And the beautiful thing about history is that there is something for everyone and more and more history is being written about very niche, very interesting areas. So we have a lot of histories of fashion and textile. We have histories of trade and commerce. Mm. There's military history, which is huge. So there's some food history. Yeah. Yeah. Food history again, very interesting. So there is something for everyone and you just have to look and you will find your You'll find your way.
0: Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you, Kudat, when you say that we have history for everyone. Because at the end of the day, these are our stories, mm-hmm. right? So you will chance upon yours too. It's just that certain stories have gotten more limelight than mm-hmm. others. Yeah. But all our stories are there. We just need to find them. And, you know, one more point I would like to add here. You know, Khuzred and I did our undergraduate in history together. And we realized that there are certain parts of your syllabus that might not pique the same interest in you that other parts of history do. And of course, as a student, you have to deal with all of it. And it can sometimes feel so immense, so expansive. The enormity of it can be intimidating. But I think the way in which we coped with it was realizing, and this is of course because of the work that we also do at Athiasology, we're just constantly trying to find how do histories relate with one another and this is not really like such a like if you are not interested in a certain aspect of the past does not mean that it is completely unrelated to an aspect of the past that you are interested in so the ideas that you may learn from areas that you are not interested in can also complement those that you do find fascinating so it's about finding those ideas and that way engaging with the past even those areas that you do not like, you may end up liking, right? And you'll realize it's not that separate. I mean, you may be interested more in an economic aspect of the past, but you realize how it's so intellect with societal mores and polity. So it's about finding those connections. I think that's what the subject is about.
1: Yeah. Another question that we have, Eric, is what are some of the rudimentary things that mm-hmm. one must ensure while writing academic histories and narratives? Yeah. I think this question deserves a multi-layered answer because there are many steps to writing good academic history or producing impactful work in any of the humanities disciplines.
0: Yeah, and before, Kudrit, we just answer this question, I think it's important for all of you to know that we also do not speak as an authority on this subject. This is a constant learning for us too, but we engage with history very seriously. And we, Mm -hmm. astrology's main objective is to be steeped in rigorous academic research while making our research and our contribution more accessible and inclusive for people to refer to. So we speak from that and we speak from the experience of being history students, from what we have learned from our professors, especially. So we are just going to pass down some of the knowledge that we know. So, Kudrat.
1: So I think that the best starting point is, of course, to read as much as you can, read as widely as possible. It's also very important to stay abreast of interdisciplinary works that are happening. If you're looking at history in particular, it could be political histories, it could be the latest archaeology in a particular field. It could even be something like the latest mathematical models being employed to a particular area of economic history. So as different as these areas might seem, it is important to go over them, understand what they're trying to say and incorporate them in your work if they're relevant. Besides that, it is also very important to be aware of the evolution of the research in your field. A lot of the times we do see that just because a paper was written in the 1950s or 60s, students today feel that maybe it's not relevant because so much time has passed. But those are the foundations of Where we start to get answers or hypotheses Mm -hmm. to historical questions. So it's very important to see the people's work and to see who has laid the groundwork, where Mm -hmm. they started from and get ideas about what you can do differently by looking at this evolution. Because other people have made your research easier by starting from Mm -hmm. somewhere Mm -hmm. and you are contributing to that. Besides that, you must also not ignore primary sources. A lot of times we just rely on, you know, most recent research papers in journals or recent books and we ignore primary sources. But it's very important, again, to go back to the original work, especially if you can read it in the language in which it has been produced. That would be the best because then you don't lose the essence of what the work communicates. So that is, of course essential to historical research. And also in primary sources, I'd like to mention that wherever ground research is possible, you should do it. Whether it's a site, whether it's a museum object, whether it's a digitally available painting, Mm. you know, whatever it is, you must engage with it. Even oral testimonies for that matter can vastly
0: contribute to your work. Yes. And uh, I think to this, uh, Kudrat, you've done very interesting work, especially when you were studying at Cambridge. So I would like you to give a sort of example of the groundwork that you did and what did it involve?
1: So while my groundwork was not pure history, I was looking at something more current. It did convey to me the importance of oral histories, of oral testimonies. And what I saw was that I came out of interviews with so many more questions and, of course, some answers as well. But I think it gives you perspective when you talk to the local people, the people who are most directly impacted by what you're studying. And that perspective is crucial for someone who is going to be spending lots of time sitting in one place with their laptop, with a bunch of primary sources, you do need perspective to expand your own views after you've reached a sort of choking
0: point. Yeah, absolutely. I also would just like to add that Kudrat said when she was speaking about primary sources that it is ideal that you refer to it in its original language, but we completely understand that it is not always possible. You may want to engage, especially, you know, for example, somebody who wants to look at, maybe let's again, you know, we spoke about Mughal paintings. That's why I'm just continuing that uh, thread. You may have to look at a lot of Persian sources, Mm -hmm. right? But you may not know the language. You may not know Persian. In that case, it is very important to be wary of the translations. Now, here's... The, 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 catch. The, the catch, right? <laughs> because you may think, okay, if there is an English translation, I can just pick it up. Doesn't matter who's translated it. But no, not only does it matter who has translated it, but also in the time period in which it was translated. Yes. Because translations too evolve. And I mean, this will be, this is like a sneak peek, this will be in a future (laughs) episode. For example, when the Kama Sutra, the um, ancient Indian text was translated in colonial India, the translation, the first one that comes out uh, by Richard Burton and piers that carried inaccuracies which were only sort of, I don't want to use the word solved, but for convenience over time, right? Mm -hmm. So translations too, you need to be very wary of the kind of translations that exist. And obviously, again, connecting to the point Kudrat said that just because a certain translation has been, you know, considered to be completely outdated, it doesn't mean that you don't keep knowledge of it. Because that will reveal to you how your particular field has evolved over time and you'll be able to make comparisons, you'll be able to get a sense of, okay, what's the difference between this translation and this Mm -hmm. and therefore it gives you a more nuanced perspective. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yes, so many cautions must be taken while undertaking primary and secondary research. And once you actually start writing, that is where you compile all of these ideas. And the objective should be to make it as accessible as possible. Because if the work is not accessible, frankly, very few people will be able to connect to what you're trying to say. Mm. And as academics, as researchers, even as students, it is our responsibility to communicate our ideas as clearly as possible for anyone to make sense of them. So, Please do ensure that you don't fall into the trap of using jargon and very complicated language while trying to communicate your views. Keep it as clear, as structured as possible. And a good structure is far more important than employing fancy language. That
0: is for sure. Yeah, crisp. Less is more and being crisp and concise.
1: Yes. And that will also greatly help other people who do read your work later on. Like Eric said earlier about corridors into history, right? Think of your research as someone else's corridor into a particular part of history. And you would want them to be able to relate with your work.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think it's also important to understand, and this is something, you know, we do from the last two years, we've been doing the Athiasology Journal, Mm. which is supposed to be a bridge between academics who have been in the field for very long and emerging academicians or students who are interested in the past. And it is a freely available digitalized journal that's on our website. The third edition is set to come out this year. And this is something that we go over in our meetings. This is something that even our reviewers have said to us, that when you are writing a paper, and I'm going to, of course, be specific right now, you're writing a paper on history. Understand that you are a contributor to this vast field, right? You are not the final word. You Mm -hmm. have not revealed the ultimate truth. (laughs) And yes, your work is fascinating. It is personal to you. It is a very sacred space. And you may develop a very strong relationship with it. But at the same time, when you write a work, be open to criticism. Be open to interpretations of your work flowing in from other directions. Because that does not take away from your work. It only adds to it. Scholarly engagement with one's work is actually what sort of determines its success, not how many people have read it and how many people have loved it. But when you engage with it, when people debate on it, that is when you realize that your work has that nuance and substance, right? So be open to constructive criticism, understand that your work can evolve, can adapt, and always know that with history, as we said, there is no end to the past. There are no full stops to history, as one of our professors would say. Mm -hmm. So remember that something in the past might be unlocked at any time. And I will go back to my area, Harappa. (laughs) The moment if the script is in need, a script is decoded, all of our understanding can entirely change. It can alter, right? So be open to that possibility with history, that your work can change. And that is what makes it fascinating.
1: Yeah. And like history, history writing has no end
0: either. Mm, Absolutely. Next question is the history books that we go back to. Very interesting.
1: Very interesting, Eric,
0: but also a very difficult question. (laughs) Absolutely. It's like being asked, what's your favorite movie? Yeah. So that's why I'm going to just let this be handled by you first. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Okay.
1: To start off, I think we can both agree that Upinder uh, Singh's A History
0: yes. of Ancient and Early Medieval India has hands down been it's, like a canon for us. It's the book yes. you you as as students of history, Indian history, that's somewhere that you really start and the way in which it covers such vast geographies and time periods of course only till early medieval. Yeah. And you know it's rich with images and illustrations and charts and tables and it is truly a very important contribution and I think that's something that we go back to frequently.
1: Absolutely, for anything ancient and early
0: medieval it is the go-to book. Absolutely, but what about some you know personal sort of books that you go back to?
1: One name that strikes me instantly is Fazal Devji mm. the impossible Indian. Mm. He takes a very different view on Gandhi. And of course, anything new on Gandhi, because there's so much work that's already been done. Mm. So for anything new to come out, it really has to be yeah. drastically different Absolutely. from earlier interpretations. Yeah. And his, I think, was a very very interesting way of looking at him
0: yeah and you know you guys as you listen to us will realise that while Kudrat dwells personally in the modern (laughs) I am at the other end of the pole I am as ancient as possible ancient and medieval to be specific so for me There are multiple books and if we start talking about even one of them, you know, there can be an entire episode dedicated. So I think instead I can just mention some names and their works that have made an impact on me. One is definitely Nayanjot Jotlehari. I mean, her work on Ashoka has really inspired me. She just makes Ashoka so accessible, so personable and very exciting. I also think Shireen Ratnagar's Understanding Harappa had a major impact on me because for the longest time, now people know that I am completely and utterly obsessed with Harappa. (laughs) I can't go a second without talking about it. But there was definitely a time in my life also when I found it to be dry, when I found it to be, well, what is it that's really going on here? Mm -hmm. And as one of our professors used to say that Shereen Ratnagar's understanding Harappa can really make you hear the Harappans. So I found that very fascinating anything by B N Goswami of i course. mean my love for art history i owe it to professor goswami i think the way in which he made paintings literally so visually i mean of course they are visually rich on their own but his textual contributions his analysis of the painters, his understanding of the patrons, his sense of grasping the time during which these artworks were born, I mean, I I find all of it, thoroughly spellbinding. And Lucy Peck's book on Delhi is something I go back to frequently. I mean, actually, anything on Delhi, I keep on going back to. But Lucy Peck's work is is tremendous. And I mean, the list can really go on, right? I can keep on going. So I know you would do a good job in ending this question. So tell me one more book, though. What's another book?
1: One more for me would be Kama McLean's A Revolutionary History of Interwar India. Mm. Much has been written about the revolutionary sort of subsect in the Indian independence movement. But the way that she has compiled, I mean, you should look at the variety of sources Mm. that she uses anything from letters to posters to she uses so many posters, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, really interesting read. And I think she makes a fascinating compendium of the most important branches of revolutionary activities during that time. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Now, the last question that we'll take is rather personal. What keeps you going? So what keeps us going? I think Eric,
1: that from this conversation especially, mm. and from our past few episodes, it is quite evident that mm. we are obsessed. Yeah, fascinated with, with history. Oh, yeah,
0: you the you fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> Utterly, completely devoted to the subject and not only from the podcast but from our great digital footprint <laughs> you know with astrology, the with the work that we've been doing for last five years now it is obvious so i think what genuinely keeps us going is community the sort of family of history aficionados, as we call them, that we have built over the last few years. Be it all of you who have come to our heritage walks or our museum tours, to our events in art galleries or to our conversations and workshops that we have done online, to everybody who engages with our posts.
1: Yes, and every DM that we get, every comment on our work, or whether it's a post, whether it's a reel, every... Even something like a story response can be so encouraging Mm. for us. And it genuinely gives you a sense of people valuing your work. And I think that a supportive community, more specifically, has been instrumental in keeping us
0: going. Absolutely. And the community is not only just comprised of academics or historians. I mean, we have had the pleasure and honor of meeting and learning from so many people from so many different fields. And their insights has truly made our work so so interdisciplinary. So I think it is community. It is is your love, your encouragement, your support that keeps us going. Thank you for that. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of the For Old Time Sake podcast by Thyasology. This is Eric Chopra.
1: And this is Kudrat Singh.
0: And we'll see you again very soon in our next episode. Bye-bye.